the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. I have to start by saying, Gordon, that's, that's pretty slick. That's pretty good uh, information operations. Yes, this is about the third phase of China's propaganda on this. The first phase was to say, we regret the incident and, um, you know, it was just a weather balloon. Right. Second phase was to get really upset, um, threaten retaliation. And the third phase has been mockery. Um, the fourth phase, um, which we learned on Monday, was that, oh, the United States has been sending spy balloons yeah. over China in 2022, which is obviously untrue. Um, but this, this, this very slick um, uh, video is phase three. What does it mean? I, I was asked at the weekend on a, on a Twitter Spaces about this 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 multiplicity of official accounts coming out of Beijing. Uh, my answer was, and I'm not the expert you are, that it's pretty much par for the course. First, it's you know dissembling. Oh, that's just a civilian uh, weather balloon, as if there is such a thing as a civilian weather balloon in communist China. Then it's escalating all the way to we want an apology, and then America did it. This kind of back and forth, this twisting of the narrative every 24 hours, that's pretty usual, isn't it, Gordon? Yes, it is. Um, and this balloon incident shows you um, that quick changes in, in uh, Chinese propaganda. They've been going through a number of them. Um, they're different. They've played at different audiences. Um, but China's actually been fairly effective because you hear a lot of people in the U.S. Um, parrot a lot of what Beijing has been saying. Now, we'll... Um... We've been debating, or the mainstream has been debating, what that first balloon was doing, this massive, this 200-foot balloon, uh, why it was stopping over those various very sensitive sites, such as the, the missile sites. For me, and I'm not an expert on, on satellites, but I, I do understand a little bit about grand strategy and uh, information operations. The issue for me is less the technical capabilities of the platform, because we know they have hundreds of spy satellites with very advanced capabilities in the upper atmosphere. The, the issue more is the probing test of our national security architecture, the lack of response until the first vessel was over the water and had executed its surveillance mission. And then beyond that, the tertiary effect for me is how this ostensibly successful surveillance mission over our sovereign airspace, how that is packaged for those nations China wants to intimidate or bring into its one belt, one road global hegemonic system. It's, it's more the how it is communicated that is uh, rather important than exactly what was picked up. What is, what is your response? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, first of all, um, China learned something from this balloon that it could not from any other platform. 
And that is it saw the reactions of certain general officers, saw the reaction of NORAD and the reaction of the Pentagon leadership in general to an obvious intrusion into American airspace. Um, and so that was invaluable. Um, the other thing is that, of course, its imagery is better on, from a balloon than from a satellite because balloons at 60,000 feet, satellite is what, four or five hundred, maybe even higher, uh, 100,000 feet. The, the thing, though, um, and that is propaganda, which you mentioned, and that is also probably one of the motives that China had, because China was showing to the world that the United States was not capable of defending its own airspace. Um, and really what that narrative could very well end up being is Beijing saying to other countries, look, you got to ditch the U.S., you got to obey China because we're in charge and the Americans are finished. So um, there are any number of different benefits that China could have gotten from this. And we don't know exactly the motives for this, um, but we have to start assuming that uh, what we just talked about are, are some of the things that ran through their minds before they authorized this. And is there any way to connect the response or the lack of robust response from the United States until this weekend to China's putative plans for Taiwan? How, how does, does this connect for any kind of military action that uh, Beijing and the CCP would take against Taiwan? I think that the people in Taiwan should be concerned about the lack of reaction you got to remember that this balloon entered territorial U.S. airspace on January 28th. Yeah. The commander in chief, President Biden, wasn't notified until the fourth day of the incursion. And that shows, a, 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 you know, inexplicable failure on the part of the senior leadership in the Pentagon to brief uh, the commander in chief on an obvious threat. And as you point out, um, you know, once this got into the lower 48 states, then there was the issue of, of uh, harm to people on the ground if they shot this down. Now, if I were President Biden, I would have shot it down over Montana. But that is not an unreasonable reaction to wait until South Carolina. But what was unreasonable was for the Pentagon not to tell Biden while they could have shot this down over Alaska or Western Canada, where there was no people, no people, no pro uh, property um, structures uh, um, there. So that shows the Chinese that there's a real problem in the Pentagon. But how does that translate to something that is happening uh, thousands of miles away? So here we have a really embarrassing incident over U.S. territory in our sovereign airspace. When it comes to Taiwan, is it just, hey, look, guys, they can't even decide in a matter of days how to deal with an incursion. How do you think they're going to deal with us sending our paratroopers or our landing craft to your shores? Is, is, is there a more explicit connection? No, I, I think that what you said is absolutely right. Um, it, it shows the failure of the Pentagon to understand um, the Chinese threat. And whether that threat is Japan, Philippines, India, Taiwan, um, South Korea, or the United States, it, it just showed um, you know, general officers not being able to make decisions which, um, they, they made decisions which I can't explain. How does... How do the balloon incursions fit into the last few years of U.S.-Sino relations? Is this a spike? Is it unusual? Is it indicative of, of heightened military tension? Or is it something that we weren't paying attention to, but because 
you know, a photographer in Montana paid attention to the sky, suddenly it's a big deal. Yeah. The balloon incursions that occurred during the Trump administration were not noticed by the Pentagon itself, which is the reason why General Spaulding wasn't informed. Um, and that's because they appeared to be, I guess, anomalies in um, their radar capture, and uh, they just didn't know what to make of it. Um, but after this big spy balloon intrusion, um, the Pentagon said they went back on, on all the material they collect, all the data they collected. They ran it through different filters, and they realized that they had incursions. Um, and that's how um, they have been able to track these most recent three incursions because they're now looking at a broader range of radar signatures and finally realizing that they, that they came here. That's fascinating when you think about it, because it means that the Chinese were surveilling us without our knowing about it from our own skies. And that means Americans shouldn't really feel safe even in their own country. And the fact that uh, they went, apparently the three that were shot down at the weekend were much, much, much smaller, the size of a small vehicle, a small car, as opposed to the prior one that traversed the nation, which was at least 200 foot wide. Does that in and of itself indicate a potential escalation that the Chinese feel so emboldened that now they're going to send through something that's 10, 12 times larger than any prior surveillance vessel? Oh, absolutely. Um, this shows um, it can be a number of things, Seb. Um, for instance, it could be the Chinese military, which is now politically powerful in Beijing, just decided that they were going to do this on their own. Uh, and the Chinese military is extremely hostile, extremely anti-American. Or it could be Xi Jinping, as we talked about, uh, trying to humiliate the United States. It could be Xi Jinping trying to distract everyone from his domestic policy failures. Or it could be uh, the first attempts to intimidate the United States um, not to get involved in a Taiwan conflict, for instance, because China would use its nuclear weapons. Um, there are any number of different explanations. None of them are good. All of them are ominous. And that means, yeah, as you just point out, this could be the initial stages of a kinetic war. Let's look at one uh, piece of the jigsaw puzzle. That is the man who is currently the most senior military officer in the United States when he was chief of staff of the army in combats in a camouflage uniform. He had this to say at a public event. Play cut. Uh, China's not an enemy. Uh, and I think that's important for people to clearly understand. Uh, China is a rising power. Uh, China has been a rising power since uh, Deng Xiaoping in 79, and uh, they are going to develop themselves and are developing themselves uh, into a great power. That is not to say, however, that they are an enemy. They are not our enemy. They are a great power. That is not what I learned when I was in the White House and I read the uh, intelligence assessments for President Trump. Uh, I'm curious, c can you give us some kind of... Uh, uh, sense of, of what Beijing, the CCP, the People's Liberation Army, the Communist Party think when they hear that from somebody who is now the most senior officer in the United States, General Mark Milley. Do they say, well, that means that this is now a tributary nation, this is now a supplicant? Do they think that, well, our information campaign, our disinformation campaign has worked on him? How do they read that kind of public statement from the man who is meant to make sure that we are ready for war? 
Yeah, I think that cut was from 2016. Yeah. And in 2016 or so, that was generally considered to be um, the view in Washington and, and American policy circles. I think it was wrong then, um, but Milley was in, in very good company. Um, what we have right now, though, it's clear that China is not a competitor, as President Biden says. Um, they're not even an adversary, which Biden won't use that term. Um, they are an enemy. And we should be using the same term for them that they use for us, <laughs> because they have declared a, quote unquote, people's war on us. They did that in May 2019. That has a as a phrase which has great significance in Communist Party lingo. And I hope that that Milley wouldn't say that today, but I'm afraid that he would. Let, let's call uh, call out some names here. Who's responsible for that? Where, where does this incredibly naive and and just counterfactual analysis of the world's largest communist dictatorship begin? Was it Kissinger convincing Nixon to open to China and thus put a wedge between Beijing or Moscow? Who, who sold us this bill of goods, Gordon? A lot of different people. Um, you know, you can go back um, to, for instance, uh, Richard Nixon's famous article in Foreign Affairs. And then, of course, uh, Nixon's uh, overtures to China, 1972 trip. Kissinger was there. Um, and then Bill Clinton. Um, Clinton talked about, um, you, you know, you can't nail jello to a wall, which was his reference to the Communist Party's inability to control information. But they've done a pretty good job of that, Seb, um, especially with those narratives that that you pointed out in the beginning. So um, this was this was failure across liberals and conservatives, um, Democrats and Republicans. You know, just about everybody believed it because this theory sounded good, um, especially sounded good after the failure and the fall of the Soviet Union. People thought, oh, you know, this is, as Francis Fukuyama, the <laughs> political scientist said, this is the end of history. Right. Um, yeah, events will continue to occur. But democracy and free markets have won. Yeah, I um, when I came into the White House, my my brief, as I thought it would be, would be counterterrorism, and then it became a far far broader remit. And when I started going to the the meetings uh, with the president at the NSC on China and so forth, um, I realized, yeah, he's right. That China is the number one strategic threat. And I looked at it as a Sisyphean task, just, you know, literally, you know, rolling a boulder uphill and then seeing it roll down every night and then having to roll it up again in the morning. I, I thought it would be hard. I mean, almost impossible to move Palo Alto, Silicon Valley, Google, Microsoft in the right direction. I think President Trump actually got us quite far in, in waking up America question for you is, Gordon, do you agree? And how much is the, 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 the balloon fiasco, as it were, a red pilling, a, a Sputnik wake up moment for the rest of America that doesn't, you know, eat and drink geopolitics every day like we do? Yeah, I, I think Sputnik moment is, is a perfect analogy. You know, going back to October 1957, um, the, the Russians launched the first artificial satellite, I can remember my dad taking me out into the backyard at night looking for Sputnik. Wow. Um, and, and that, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm that old. Um, <laughs> but the point is that uh, this, the Chinese are driving us um, in directions that many people don't want to go. 
Um, but I think people are starting to see this. And to answer the first question you asked, yes, it was President Trump who was the first one to view China in a different light. Because what China, what, what uh, Trump did was he did not buy into the quote unquote engagement theory. Trump saw America first. Trump was not um, hostile to working with China, but only when it was in America's interest. So this is a fundamental change in thinking. And Trump did move us in a fairly important, uh, it was a fundamental change. And I think that what we saw was a fair movement towards um, a much better policy. If he had another four years, um, I think we would be where we need to be. But the other thing that's interesting is that for all of Biden's problems, um, Biden has adopted many of Trump's policies, not all of them, of course, on, on China, but some of the important ones. And that shows you Trump's influence on American foreign policy. Another four years um, for Trump and, and we'll be OK. You said something very, very telling previously, Gordon, that is commonplace for dictatorships, for authoritarian regimes that um, have internal problems and then point at an external enemy. They want to distract from the very severe internal issues, especially when you have a command economy uh, and it is on you know, the brink of collapse. We saw that with the Soviet Union and elsewhere. You said Xi Jinping um, has serious domestic issues. Could you talk to us about um, those domestic issues and perhaps give us a sense of, of how fragile that regime could be? Xi Jinping's signature domestic policies, most of them have been reversed. So, for instance, zero COVID was abandoned on December 7th by the National Health Commission. Um, and that was just shortly after he had doubled down in a very public speech supporting zero COVID. That, um, that, that, that in a, let's stop there for a second. That in and of itself is a massive marker because dictatorial regimes very rarely say, oops, we were sorry. That's a big deal. It's enormously big deal because the Chinese people are furious. The Chinese people went through three years of zero COVID, which is the strictest disease control measure this side of North Korea. Um, and essentially what happened was um, officials tried to prevent every transmission of this disease and went to extraordinary lengths to do that. Chinese people they accepted that, um, although they were many times, you know, we saw, for instance, in the videos from Shanghai that they just burst out. But by and large, they accepted it. But when the National Health Commission abandoned the policy, the narrative across China was, why did we go through three years of zero COVID and now the regime is letting disease rip? And by rip, I mean that they admitted to about 800 million infections, and it's probably a lot more within a very short period of time. And probably there'll be somewhere between one and two million deaths this winter from COVID in China. And the Chinese people are furious. So, but it wasn't just zero COVID, Zeb. It was Xi Jinping's common prosperity program, which he stood behind. He talked about it all the time. Now the regime doesn't mention it at all, which is an indication it's been abandoned. And then the tech crackdown, which again was Xi Jinping's stamp on, on domestic policy, that has been at least partially alleviated. So we're seeing um, changes that are inexplicable, other than to say that Xi Jinping has, his policies have been repudiated, which means that his system, if his policies are repudiated, he's been repudiated, which means that he needs a way to strike out against his um, 
Communist Party adversaries. And one way to do that is a war. We saw his hero, Xi Jinping's hero, Mao Zedong, do the same thing with the Cultural Revolution. He launched, Mao launched the Cultural Revolution, a decade-long campaign that almost destroyed China because Mao wanted to get after um, Communist Party senior leaders who had abandoned his policies. So we're seeing the same thing. And and what about the the Uyghur phenomena? What we saw earlier, the 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 trains being filled with people uh, against their will, has that been tamped down? Is that under control, or is that still of concern to the dictator? That is that's still ongoing. Um, there has been no let up in the genocidal campaign against Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other Turkic minorities. Um, these are crimes against humanity. Um, there has been people, I mean, millions, um, between one and 3.3 or so million detained in concentration camps. We know people are dying in those camps, basically executed, because China actually built a crematorium between two of these uh, concentration camps. Rape is a matter of official policy. Um, children are put in prisons. Um, this is the most horrific policies since the Third Reich. Um, uh and, and let me ask you one, one more before I, I ask for, for some concluding remarks. There, there's a story about this. It's not even a, an, a real estate bubble. It's these whole ghost cities. I've got an image of one here where real estate exploded in the last few decades and people bought properties and then nobody moved in and the market collapsed. Is this tenable? What, what, how is this happening in China that they can so not manage the economy, that they literally have cities that are empty, Gordon. Yeah, um, this is one of the reasons why the Chinese people are unhappy. Um, zero COVID, stumbling economy, which is probably contracting, and plunging property prices. Property prices are so important for people's mentality because about 70% of the wealth of the Chinese middle class is tied up in those apartment units. Right. And those apartment units, you can't sell them because no one wants to buy them. And if you could, the property, the prices have fallen so far. So you got an illiquid market. The reason they could do it, Seb, was because they have they control everything. It's, it's a controlled economy. So they can just do things by fiat, even though they may ne make no economic sense. All right. I could do this uh, for hours with you, Gordon. We will have an opportunity to continue in person at the biggest conservative convocation of the year, imminently at CPAC. Can't wait to see you there, Gordon. But uh, uh, right after the balloon fiasco, you came on my show for a briefer you know, discussion of what should happen. None of what you said should happen occurred, but I would like you, just in case someone by accident inside uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue lands on this program or has this, this uh, interview sent to them, you had at least three or four very concrete things that the American government should do after this aerial incursion and this surveillance overflight. Would you repeat those uh, policy recommendations? We need to impose costs on China. So, for instance, I'd have the president of the United States publicly declare that we will defend Taiwan, um, move troops there as a tripwire, um, base some supplies there on an emergency basis, what we should have done in Ukraine. I think we should close China's four remaining consulates in the U.S., and we should strip the embassy staff down to just the ambassador. We need to get all of these Chinese spies out of our country. And by the way, while we're at it, 
Let's make sure that no party from China owns U.S. real estate. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, farmland, ranch land. The only the only Chinese parties I would allow to own ranch land and farmland would be those who have um, submitted papers to become a U.S. citizen. But apart from that, I'd say it's time to expropriate that farm and ranch land. And what about all these former uh, institutes of Confucianism that were actually hotbeds for Chinese CCP penetration of U.S. colleges and schools. I know some of them have changed their names. What's what's the status of these subversive institutions in America? The Confucius Institutes, they were about 118 or so. Um, they're now only about 10. But as you point out, a lot of them have been rebranded. And also, even more important are the Confucius classrooms in our secondary schools. We need to eliminate every single one of them and make sure they don't come back in another form. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.